Blog Talk Radio. Our next guest is Yosef Martin, self-made million. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. I'm really happy to, uh, tonight, uh, even though I just had a glitch, uh, to have with us uh, what I think is a, uh, a woman with a very interesting um, information source for us. It's Emily Chase Smith. It says Esquire, so it means she's an attorney. Um, uh, she's helped countless entrepreneurs. And uh, she's here to talk about financing, which uh, in our ranking is uh, uh, whenever we do a survey, it's either the number one or number two concern of small businesses. Emily, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Well, we're, uh, we're glad to have you. By the way, I, I loved your book, uh, The Financially Savvy Entrepreneur. I thought it um, it's one of the reasons you're on this program is because I really uh, wanted uh, our audience to uh, hear what you had to say. So, but great. Before, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, uh, I learned something. The th- great thing about this pro- uh, being a newsman and particularly this program is I get to talk to a lot of interesting people who really know what they're talking about. So I learn as well as my audience. But we always ask, tell us a little bit about yourself personally. Well, uh, I'm in Southern California, grew up here. I've got three kiddos, married 20 years. And my background is, as you mentioned, as an attorney, although I don't practice anymore. But for many years, I was a bankruptcy attorney for small business owners. And in, in my role, I had the opportunity to sit across from a lot of people at kind of their lowest point when their, their dream was slipping away from them. And I found myself thinking over and over, like, doggone it, I wish we could have had a discussion a year before this date because it didn't necessarily have to end this way because I started seeing the same patterns over and over again that were getting folks into trouble. And these were smart, hardworking, great people with good business ideas that just didn't have the financial piece to go alongside it and support it. And so I like to say I went from being the Coast Guard and pulling people out of the water to being the lighthouse and saying, hey, let's not hit these rocks at all. Well, what what are the, some of the things that you saw that they should have um, known or done a year before? Well, the, I would say the primary thing that I would see is kind of what I call fingers crossed financial management. And so that's, uh, you know, I, I hope it's going to take care of itself. I hope it's going to be okay. I think I have a great idea. I'm a hard worker. Everything will fall into place. And so it was kind of, I'm going to turn a blind eye. And a lot of that was because they just didn't know what else to do. There wasn't anywhere that they had received any financial education necessarily. And a lot of the personal financial education that's out there doesn't really work well for business owners because it's really based on you're going to get X number of dollars every two weeks. Well, we know as business owners that doesn't happen. And so they didn't really have any tools or systems in place to manage this kind of roller coaster that they were going to be on that was going to be so different from when they had been a regularly W-2 uh, employee. Well, let me ask you this, uh, 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 not to be argumentative, but uh, <laughs> many people can get out of, uh, many small business owners can get out of it if they only drove the top line, sales. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the fancy number, right? That's the one that makes you feel good. 
But, you know, I always ask my entrepreneurs, would you rather have a business that has $4 million in sales and nothing drops to the bottom line? Or what if we just even gave you $200,000 in sales, but you had 100000 that dropped to the bottom line? Which business would you rather have? Now, they're not going to feature your little $200,000 business in Entrepreneur Magazine, but uh, you're going to have a much nicer life than if you have $4 million. It's fantastic that that's what's running through your business and you've gotten people to generate that level of income for you. But if you're not managing all the financial moving pieces that come with that, you, you can end up starving. Okay. Uh, a good answer. Now, t- <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us what are some of the things that um, uh, people sh- should be doing um, this year to avoid bankruptcy next year or two years. The floor is yours. <laughs> well, one of the main things that um, I teach that is kind of eye-opening for entrepreneurs is cash flow planning. And that's something that's really different, again, from what you're taught in personal finance. You're, you're always kind of looking to what happened in the past and working in the now, but you're not looking into the future. And that's the big key piece with business because we do have this giant roller coaster. Most businesses have some kind of high and low that can be tracked with seasons or can be tracked with marketing or can be tracked to some other type of um, event kind of outside of their control, but they know about it. And because they know about it, they can plan for it. Like when I was a bankruptcy attorney, I like to say people don't like to go bankrupt in the summer or at Christmas. They want to be at the beach or celebrating with their family. So when I ran a bankruptcy practice, I had to know that, right? Because my paralegal still wanted to get paid, and my rent still wanted to get paid, and so did my uh, malpractice insurance. So if you just think about it on a smaller scale like that, all of my expenses are going to be consistent throughout the year, but my income is going to flow up and down and up and down. And if I know that and I plan for it, all of a sudden I'm not having these, oh, my goodness, what's happening right now moments, I know I'm going to be okay. And there's something about even that process of planning through it that gives you the certainty to move ahead and to say, okay, I don't have to be worried about this. I can use my creativity and my energy on my business rather than running a tape in the back of my head, I hope it's going to be okay, I hope it's going to be okay. So planning into the future, and I call it cash flow planning because it has to be about cash, right? As soon as you run out of cash, you're out of business. Um, so that I know that, and using my example, I can pay my rent, I can pay my paralegal line, I can pay my malpractice insurance all the way through the summer while everybody else is at the beach. Yes, but um, that's well and good, but how do, now let's go to the next step. How do you plan for the future? How do you uh, forecast your cash flow? What are some of the tips you give? Well, I always tell people when I hand them the spreadsheet, I say, this is a spreadsheet. It is not a manifestation board or a vision board. So you know how some some experts will tell you, you know, cut out the picture of the Lamborghini and paste it on the board? That's not what we're doing. As soon as we're in Excel, we're automatically not doing that, right? So we definitely want to be conservative with our numbers because with our cash flow planning and with looking out into the future, we want to create some certainty. And if we know in our heart of hearts that we've been pretty optimistic, and we haven't created that certainty, and, and we've really taken a lot of the teeth out of what we're doing. So if you have an operating business, historical numbers are great because you can look back and say, what did we do in July of last year? What did we do in July of the year before that? And we can extrapolate that forward. You also need to know what's going on in your business in terms of marketing. What big marketing efforts are you going to make that uh, might move the needle in terms of what's going to happen? And What's most important with this exercise is to know that you're going to make it, right? So when you do the exercise and it shows that you're going to have some months where there isn't going to be enough cash, that's scary, but it's good to know now in July that you're not going to have enough cash in December than to figure out in December. Well, it's all well and good, and and you're right, but to me those are the fundamentals of any business, is to plan out, forecast cash. Are you saying a lot of small businesses don't do that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, you know, you mentioned polls, and, and I bet if you polled your listeners, it's, it's one of those things that's perhaps on the to-do list. But again, it's hard if you don't have a way to do it. Um, most small business owners have gotten into the business because they love their core business. You know, they make beautiful handcrafted furniture. 
not because they're necessarily super financially savvy or like to open up an Excel spreadsheet or, or like to work in an accounting program. They, as a matter of fact, a lot of times don't. And so while they might have a few rough numbers drawn on a piece of paper somewhere, there's no, again, certainty that's created by that numbers. Well, uh, shouldn't you have a business plan before you open a business? You should, and it should definitely include all these financials, and it's much tougher if you have no history. So you asked me earlier, you know, well, how do you put together that cash flow? And I mentioned you look backwards. Well, a lot of people say, that's great. I want to do this right from the get-go. How do I plan for that? And for that, it's just about how long is my runway? So when do I expect income to start coming into my business? What's it going to cost me in the meantime to run this business such that I know how long do I have, we call it a runway because it's like an airplane, but airplane's landing, how long does that pilot have to get that aircraft down and stop (laughs) before he runs out of runway, before he runs out of opportunity to be able to do this? And so when we start looking at new businesses, we say, okay, where is your money coming from and how long can we make it last? Because that's what I see a lot in small business owners. You know, they'll they'll read, uh, again, Inc. or Success or Entrepreneur, and, and they want to go big because their dream is so big. But if they think in terms of runway, they can start to automatically see, if I'm very careful and conservative in how I use my money, look how much longer I have to make this business work. As opposed to if I go real big right out of the gate, I shorten my run rate considerably. So that means I only have 12 months to make this thing work as opposed to maybe I could get 24 or 36 months out of this money that I have. Well, you, you know, you're interesting. You're, you're mentioning three publications that seem to um, uh, really focus on the big, the big winners. Yet most mm-hmm. small business, um, what, what is it? Uh, on average, most uh, business, small businesses in the United States have sales, I think it's about $230,000. Mm-hmm. Um, People often forget that because we see that in in those magazines, the, the, uh, these big winners, but we never yeah. see the big uh, losers. Well, um, and we pattern ourselves after what we're reading. I mean, those are the magazines that are inspirational to us. And so we see, oh, they've done this great thing with their office, and that's so fantastic. But we don't stop and think, wait, that's going to cut my runway by half. Why don't I not do that? Why don't I ramp up slowly? And then when I get to that point, awesome. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to give myself a lot more opportunity to make this business viable before I go patterning myself after, like you say, the big winners. What are some of the other things that you say in your book and tell people? Well, one of the big things, and this comes from my background as a bankruptcy attorney, is I want small business owners to know where they're at risk and to start mitigating those risks as soon as possible. So there's some risks we take as small business owners, they're unavoidable. If I want to go open a frozen yogurt shop, dime to a dollar, I'm going to have to personally guarantee that lease. So that means my business is guaranteed that that lease is going to get paid for the entire term of the lease, and I, Emily, have also guaranteed that that is going to get paid for the entire term of the lease. And I want to say probably a good 60% of the bankruptcies that we filed had to do with commercial leases. And a lot of times business owners don't know or don't understand the difference between, hey, I think it's separate because I have an LLC, I have a separate bank account, I signed as Emily, uh, you know, president of Frozen Yogurt Shop, Inc., but um, I also signed as Emily, Emily personally. And so in my book I really talk about you need to understand where you're exposed, and I go through, you know, here's are the places that we find people most exposed, And how are we going to start mitigating that exposure? And I call it moving your business from being a slovenly Dorito-eating teenager on your couch into being a full-fledged adult. Because your business will park on your couch unless you help it out the door. So you need to watch your business go from baby all the way through maturity. Because if if you don't, you're going to end up being the guy who's personally guaranteed all the lines of credit, all the loans, all the commercial leases, and it's very difficult to build your own secure wealth when you're on the hook for everything that's going on in your business. And that's why people would ask me, well, how come Donald Trump gets to file all these bankruptcies and get away with it? Because Donald Trump is a master at risk mitigation. Donald Trump never signs with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is always mitigating his risk. He always has his eye on 
conserving his personal wealth so that his business would never take him down in its entirety. Well, uh, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, we, several years ago, we ran a, a series of stories about that, and we feel very strongly that um, uh, you should never sign a personal guarantee. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk away from the deal is my view if they ask you to sign a personal guarantee. Uh, I, I feel so strongly about that. And I've walked away from several instances where they demanded a personal guarantee. Um, well, and what I like to tell business owners is you may already have one. So I think that's great advice. I love that advice. Uh, if you already have one, get the heck out of it. <laughs> when it's time for that thing to be renewed or when you have extra money and you're deciding which loan to pay off, get rid of the one that's got your uh, neck on the line, not, not the one that you personally guaranteed. Get rid of that risk as quickly and methodically as you can. Well, um, let me let me ask you a question, uh, which just c- came up, um, I, and I don't remember seeing it in your book. Um, we have a case of a small business where, uh, limping along, uh, employees have um, uh, foregone uh, salaries to help the business, mm-hmm. and uh, someone told me many years ago, never borrow from your help, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, what do you say about that? It's so dangerous because employees have a, a large stable of rights. It's kind of like when you decide who are you going to owe, Visa or the IRS. You think, mm, I'd rather owe Visa than the IRS, right? So the IRS oh, has muscle. <laughs> and that's kind of the same question you're asking me. I mean, employees have the labor board, and the labor board is not joking around. So, yeah, that is a very risky strategy. It can pay off. But, again, you have to understand, you're, you are really, uh, you know, if you were a pirate, you'd be standing out walking the plank on that one. Well, uh, I agree with you there, uh, and I've been soliciting uh, 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 lawyers about that for a major article uh, on it, because that's that to me is dangerous ground. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A- Emily, I want you to stick around. Well, I see our next guest, Rocco Luisi, is... Uh, joined us and uh, I'd love for you to stick around and uh, uh, put in your comments uh, when you think appropriate. Will you do that? Absolutely. Rocco, welcome to the show. Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me on. Well, I have to tell the audience that Rocco's a a personal friend of mine and one of the smarter attorneys I know. So, uh, and I invited him on the program uh, to talk about uh, uh, debt collection, et cetera, which he knows a lot about. But, Rocco, before we start, we always ask our guests to tell a little bit about themselves. Sure. I'm a uh, New Jersey native, uh, grew up here in Parsippany, uh, graduated from uh, High Point Regional High School, uh, went on to uh, Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania, where I majored in political science, and went to uh, Seton Hall Law School, and uh, since 1997 have been in uh, private practice uh, as a business litigator. And my two specialties are uh, what I call corporate. And that's uh, typically the patriarch of the family business dies and the kids are wrestling for control of the company and squabbling for their piece of the pie. It's the uh, husband and wife that start that $30 million business out of their garage and now they're getting divorced, so the uh, business breaks up as well. And I, I represent a lot of um, professionals who go into practice together, like physicians and attorneys. And uh, their, you know, their egos clash, and they uh, can't get along. So the practice breaks up, and then uh, you know you're left with uh, trying to clean up the mess. So that's. Because, uh, uh, can I just interrupt and? I would say, is that often because when you start out, you should also have a plan for for, uh, dissolving the company? Yeah, you know, it's surprising how, I guess maybe it's not surprising, but uh, it's uh, usually the case that either there's no plan at all or there's not a good one. Uh, And that's what leads to messy breakups and litigation. Well, uh, I'm going to... 
Emily Chase Smith is on the on the phone. She she was on earlier, but I'm going to ask a question before we go on to your specialty, uh, Rocco. Uh, do, uh, do you see that happening, Emily, in in uh, that in companies? Oh, absolutely. Um, Rocco, it was funny as he was describing what he practiced. I, I was nodding my head and making a note. Contact Rocco because. Uh, you know that happens all the time. It, it's it's the starry-eyed lovers that jump into business together, and it's it's a mess later on. There should always be an agreement about what happens because something will happen. Somebody will get disinterested. Somebody will die. There'll be a bankruptcy. There'll be a divorce. The thing that I like to tell people is, hey, if your if your partner gets divorced, you could end up in business with their ex-spouse. How fun does that sound? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Rocco, we go back to you. Let's talk about your other specialty, which is the main point of this uh, uh, of of, uh, of your coming on, but uh, uh, this program. Go ahead, and what's your sure. other specialty? So the reason I, I led with the uh, corporate divorce is that usually comes first, uh, and then the next phase of my practice usually kicks in, which is. You know, once I've obtained a judgment uh, after successfully litigating a claim for a client, that's great. Now you have a piece of paper that says judgment on it, and they owe you a million dollars. Well, that doesn't really do you a lot of good unless you can actually collect on it. Uh, so, you know, a lot of attorneys are great at getting the judgments, but then they're not really clear about what to do on how to collect it. So that's where I come in. Okay, and, so go ahead, yeah, so I've developed a, an expertise in this area uh, over the years, representing uh, a variety of different kinds of clients, um, and I've done this uh, all over the country and internationally. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the things you you try and look at, um, and I try and strategize with clients at the beginning of a case, if if that's where I'm coming into the picture, is where are we going to sue uh, to have a most advantageous judgment enforcement uh, once we get the judgment? So uh, one of the priorities there is, you know, if you have different states to sue in, you pick the best state. Uh, for example, if you had a choice between New York and Texas, you'd choose New York in a heartbeat because Texas has some of the most um, creditor uh, unfriendly laws and debtor friendly laws in the country and the same is true as Florida whereas New York has very uh, creditor friendly laws so those that's one of the things you look at tell us some more so the second thing you look at is um, where uh, where do you sue state court or federal court um, and there's various considerations, but the main one is if you think you have assets um, in multiple locations, uh, you're going to want to go to federal court because it's just a lot easier once you have a federal court judgment to move around the country freely um, as opposed to a state court judgment, which you have to go to each individual state in which there are assets and what's called domesticate the judgment in those states. Uh, with a federal court judgment, uh, it's very easy to either enforce the judgment or take discovery, um, either you know depositions or document demands or subpoenas. Um, you know, just for example, in one case I have now, I have a million dollar judgment uh, against a an individual. Um, he has fallen off the map. He's nowhere to be found. So I subpoenaed three of his relatives in uh, West Virginia, Massachusetts, and Ohio, and I did that quite easily. If I had a state court judgment, I'd have to go to each of those individual states and domesticate the judgment there, and it's uh, a little bit of a lengthy process. Well, how could a small business owner um, uh, establish the ways of, of protecting himself if, if he feels um, he or she feels that they're getting... Um, they may have to go this route. Well, I think the the quicker you act, the better. If you're if you're getting the sense that um, uh, an individual or a company uh, that owes you money is uh, falling behind, uh, you don't want to let that go too far. 
um, because they may, um, you know, especially if a lot of money is involved, they may be uh, fraudulently transferring assets to to hide them from you, um, and they may be um, dissipating assets by, uh, you know, winding down and going out of business without your knowledge. Um, so these are all, you know, the, the typical thing I tell clients is uh, when you go when you're out past, uh, you know, 90 days, 120 days, 150 days. Uh, you know, then the red flags should start to go off, and, and you, sh- you should have a thought about um, uh, whether to sue them or not. Let me go to Emily now. You're sitting on the other side with uh, someone who's facing these things. Uh, what do you What do you advise them to do? Sitting on the you other know, side. It's interesting because as Rocco's talking, I think Rocco is a bankruptcy attorney's worst nightmare. He's an attorney who moves quickly and collects fast. And we were talking about those personal guarantees, and the first thing Rocco will do is say, hey, I can sue Emily's yogurt company, and I can sue Emily. So any smart attorney who's doing collections and trying to collect on, again, let's say a commercial lease or a line of credit that's been personally guaranteed, he's going to look at your company and say, well, that's pretty much defunct, but look at Emily over here. She's got a house. She's got some assets, and he's going to pursue hard, and that's what lands a lot of small business owners into bankruptcy is they've signed these personal guarantees, and so the attorneys like Rocco, who are rightfully collecting for their clients, are pursuing you personally and looking at your personal assets. I love personal guarantees. (laughs) I bet you do, Rocco. I bet you do. Rocco, in a personal guarantee... A situ- um, a situation. What do you do? And um, uh, just go a little further for our audience. I think this is a uh, this has been an eye opener for me. So I hope for our audience as well. So I was listening in towards the end of uh, your conversation uh, with with Emily, and I I heard about the personal guarantees. And you know, one thing I have to say is sometimes you you really can't do the deal unless you give a personal guarantee. You know, the creditor um, or the other person on the other side of the table may not do the deal with you unless you give a personal guarantee. So sometimes, you know, you're you're between a rock and a hard place. Um, You know, you don't have a choice. But uh, I agree with you, Don. If if you have the choice, um, sometimes it's better to just walk away uh, rather than give that personal guarantee because, uh, if you give it, believe me, it's very easy to enforce, and they're coming after your your house, your cars, you know, whatever assets you have um, that can be easily executed upon. Well, I, um, I have to tell you, I've just given one personal guarantee in my whole life, and I wish I'd never done that one. So that's, <laughs> uh, um, you know, the, and that's why I tell people, walk away from the deal. You can't do it. Um, but anyway, I interrupted you, Rocco, but do you have a third point you want to make? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, just, just on the strategy considerations, um, I, I went over um, uh, which state to pick if you have a choice and um, also whether to sue in state or federal court. Um, so you know, the third, the third thing you want to think about is y- you have to figure out where uh, most of the debtor's assets are located. Um, that's going to be another consideration. So that's going to require uh, some due diligence on uh, the debtor's assets. So you're going to you're going to want to really look into that, and that's that's another um, thing I urge clients to do because. Especially in a in a litigation, you're you're potentially spending a lot of money, and you you know going into that calculation is am I going to be able to enforce the judgment once I get it? And if the debtor has no assets or if they're financially unstable and there's a threat of bankruptcy, you may not, you may, you may end up spending a lot of money to litigate the claim only to uh, realize either the debtor has no assets and you have a worthless piece of paper called a judgment, or they may end up just filing bankruptcy. Well, Rocco, how do you decide um, 
Uh, how do you identify assets? I mean, do you, uh, 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 how do you do that? Do that? I've always been fascinated by, by that. One of the reasons I invited you to the program is you're always fascinating to talk to. How do you identify assets? Sure. I mean, there's there's a number of ways to do it, but what I typically do is start out with um, a search either on Lexis or Westlaw. There's different databases uh, available on those, and there's there's others out there in the marketplace, but those are typically my two first starting points. And what that will give you is basically it, it does a public record search uh, for you know real property, for example, uh, it'll find any uh, cars uh, registered in the individual's name uh, or or the business if the business is a uh, is a debtor. Uh, it'll find uh, you know contact information, addresses, phone numbers, uh, relatives. If you're having trouble locating someone, or if you want to obtain discovery from a relative to verify. Um, whether the uh, debtor is telling the truth or not about his assets. Uh, that's that's my, usually my starting point. Uh, another great way is to look on the Internet. Uh, Google, the, Google their name and, uh, you know, look at things like Facebook. Uh, you know, if you're uh, on a Facebook or another social website, you, may, you might see a picture of the debtor at uh, her vacation house in the Hamptons. Um, you know, uh, LinkedIn may disclose the name of an individual's employer, uh, or if the uh, entity uh, is the debtor, then uh, the debtor's officers and directors. Uh, and I had a case where I actually found uh, the debtor had a customer list on its website. And so I, what I did was I had a judgment already, and I, I uh, served writs of execution uh, upon all the customers that owed the debtor money. It's called a garnishee, and I was able to collect doing that. So I can intercept the, uh, the, if the debtor is owed payments by a third party, that third party is required to pay my client uh, instead of the debtor. No, I, don't, no, I didn't know that. Can I go back <laughs> to Emily for a second? Um, mm -hmm. uh, em Emily, uh, um, what do you what do you do in your book about the things like that? Well, my book is designed to prevent things like that. Uh, and what Rocco's talking about in California, we have what's called a kill tap. You can have a sheriff come again. If let's use my yogurt store, you can have a sheriff come, and everybody instead of paying me three dollars for their yogurt, pays it to the sheriff. Yeah, so these these are very serious things. That's why you you can't just let the financial piece of your business take care of itself because it won't. And this stuff gets very serious very quickly. In California, we even have a procedure, and I'm sure Rocco's done this a thousand times, where they can call you in and ask you about your assets. They'll tell you, bring all your bank records, bring, bring records of everything you own, and Rocco's going to sit there and ask you questions about it. You're going to tell them where your assets are under penalty of perjury. So, yeah, this is, this is all very, very serious, and that's why as soon as you start to see your personal guarantees, you want to... You want to make a plan for phasing that stuff out. So maybe you're at a point where you've already got some of that stuff in your business. Well, in the book we talk about let's lay it out, let's list it, and let's put together a plan for being done with it. Uh, we'll go back to you now, Rocco. Keep going. You're scared the day daylights out of me, but what the heck? <laughs> You're you're uh, you're thanking your lucky stars that you never signed any more personal guarantees, aren't you? <laughs> My my one and only experience was enough for me. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but please continue. Um, sure. Uh, I hope our audience is enjoying as much as I am, or sca so, being as scared as much as I am. So one of the other sources of, of information in, in the public record is um, uh, websites that uh, disclose information about cases that are filed. So, for example, um, federal cases are on a website called PACER, and you can access any um, federal district court case or bankruptcy case in the entire country, um, and you can do word searches for people's names and, and different parties. And basically what that will tell you is if somebody has um, – if a debtor is a plaintiff in a lawsuit and they're entitled – 
to uh, potentially uh, a judgment in that case, what you can do is you can serve a writ of execution on the defendant in that case, and when the judgment's payable, you can have the, the defendant or the insurance company for the defendant pay you directly. Um, and so you, you head them off at the pass um, before the judgment is, is paid to the debtor. Um, New York has a site called eCourts. It's a similar uh, search, uh, searchable database. Um, you have things like uh, divorce cases are, are very uh, informative because uh, the, the parties have to make uh, very detailed financial disclosures. So if you can get access to that information, uh, that will tell you a lot about the debtor's uh, finances. Well, keep going, Rocco. You're on a roll. Sure. Uh, you know, private detectives are also um, can be inv invaluable in certain cases. Now, you know, we're talking about uh, cases that will, um, you know, where it will make sense to hire one because they are fairly expensive. But, uh, you know, I, I can just remember one case that we had that was very interesting. Um, the, the debtor um, basically made a sham divorce, uh, and he, he basically faked. Uh, the, he, he actually went through with the divorce, but it was uh, for the purpose of hiding assets from the creditor, who was my client. And what he did was he, he transferred all the assets to his wife in the divorce, so they couldn't be executed. So we hired a private detective, uh, and turns out we we followed them around, and they were together, and they were they were living together, and you know the whole thing was a, a big sham. So we were able to uh, basically nullify the divorce and get the assets transferred back into the debtor's name, so we could execute on it. Well, obviously, these uh, the cases you're talking about are large amounts of money, right. um, um, and then it becomes a judgment of, um, and in many cases, we all know, uh, it, it, the the re return is just not worth the effort. Right. Um, uh, what is uh, what do you think is like the uh, uh, the threshold for really going doing all this? I know it varies by companies, but do you have a rule of thumb? Uh, I don't. It, it's really, you know, a case-by-case -case basis. It depends on, um, you know, the amount of money at stake, the um, the likelihood of, of success. In other words, if you really feel strongly that, you know, that there's a sham divorce, and in my case, which we did, uh, you know, it may be worth, doing that if, if there's enough money at stake. It's, you know, it's a cost-benefit analysis that I think um, each case has to be, um, you know, judged on its own. But, I, I, you know, uh, just to pull a number out of the air, if you have a $100,000 case and, you know, you're paying your lawyer a third and then you have, you know, court costs on top of that and, you know, it, it just becomes, you know, cost prohibitive in a smaller case like that to, uh, you know, hire a private detective. And plus, I do a pretty good job of private detecting my, <laughs> detectiving myself, so I try and, uh, you know, save my clients money where I can. But, if you know, I'm not going to be following somebody around at 2 o'clock in the morning, so in those kind of cases, you really do need the services of a PI. Uh, Emily, do you want to jump in and say anything now? Well, I would like to say, because you mentioned that Rocco's scaring the pants off of everybody, <laughs> I would like to say, you know, as soon as you, you get a summons or there's some kind of collection action, one thing we haven't talked about is being able to, to come in and clean out your bank account. I mean, if Rocco can find out where you bank, he can levy your bank account and clean it out up to the entire amount that he's owed, that his client is owed. So as soon as that stuff starts to percolate and it starts to happen, and I have a chapter on my book in this, that's when you need to start talking to a bankruptcy attorney because you need to understand what you can protect. Like we had a client, he had, I think, $62,000 levied out of his bank account. Now, we can't protect everything in bankruptcy court, but some things we can protect, and we could have protected part of that. As it, as it happened, we were able to pull it back into the bankruptcy because he moved quickly once it was taken out of his account. 
But the more you delay, if you're on the receiving end of all of this, you can lose some of your rights. And most bankruptcy attorneys do free consultation. You want a bankruptcy attorney that just practices bankruptcy law. He's not in divorce court one day and criminal court another day and bankruptcy court on day three. You want the guy that's in there and knows the trustees and knows the judges. But definitely sit down with a bankruptcy attorney when any of this stuff starts to happen because if you do have rights, they will not leave you destitute on the street corner. Um, but if, if you let this other stuff take its course, that's, that's potentially what could happen. Now, I'm glad you... I'm sorry, John. No, no, you you first, Rocco. Go ahead. You're the guest. I'm, I'm glad you raised that, Emily, because uh, that that was a topic that I wanted to address tonight, which is uh, fraudulent transfers uh, that I that I mentioned earlier. Um, so you, you have to be if you're if you're the debtor and you're looking to protect yourself, you have to be careful that you don't fraudulently transfer assets. Now, what is a fraudulent transfer? A fraudulent transfer or fraudulent conveyance is when you transfer an asset for less than fair market value. So, for example, you, you know there's a claim against you. There's a, a judgment against you. You uh, transfer your, um, your house uh, into solely your, your spouse's name or you transfer it to your kids. Um, just to get it out of your name, and you just you do it for a dollar or or no consideration at all. That's a fraudulent transfer. And that's so, a shame too, because you know a debtor would do that, thinking, oh no, oh no, trying to protect something. Whereas in bankruptcy, he may have been able to keep the equity in that house anyway. And now, because he's done a fraudulent transfer, he's going to lose it. Yeah, right. So because that, fraud claims are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another great point is not only should you consult a bankruptcy attorney, don't do any fancy footwork before you do. Yeah. Uh, Rocco, what's the name of your firm and how can people reach you? Sure. The name of the firm is Jaffe and Asher LLP. We're uh, based in uh, Manhattan right near Grand Central. And uh, we have offices in uh, New, uh, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut. Uh, I'm the managing partner of the New Jersey office, which is in Paramus, and our our website is jaffeandasher.com. And Can you spell and it out? We're on sure. radio. Sure. It's J-A-F as in Frank, F as in Frank, E, the word and, A-N-D, Asher, A-S-H-E-R.com. And my email address is rluisi, R-L-U-I-S-I, at jaffeandasher.com. Okay. And, Emily, tell us your book again. It's called The Financially Savvy Entrepreneur. And how do you buy it? How do you get it? Because I found uh, it Amazon, fascinating. Yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, every place, fine books are sold. Um, there's also a link to it on my website. I'm Emily, E-M-I-L-Y Chase, C-H-A-S-E, Smith, S-M-I-T-H, dot com. Okay. And, uh, 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 Emily, any final thoughts for our audience? Well, I think this has just been a really good discussion because I think it makes it very real when you hear Rocco talk about how he does what he does. And you can see that we're sitting on different sides of the fence. And so there's different strategies that, that Rocco's going to employ versus I would employ if, if I was a practicing attorney, but people in, in my seat would employ. But you can understand it. I think it brings it all to light and makes it very, very clear um, that this is something very serious and, and you want to prevent this absolutely to the extent you can. You definitely want to have financial stability in your business so that you don't end up even having these kind of discussions. Well, uh, Rocco, any final thoughts? Yeah, I just wanted to emphasize uh, two things. Number one, before you start a lawsuit, it's really important to strategize uh, about where uh, you're going to bring the lawsuit in what state and, and whether it's going to be in state or federal court. I think it's uh, it will uh, be advantageous to you once you get the judgment. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, you know, keep an eye uh, as a business owner, as a small business owner, and your accounts receivable. If, if something is uh, uh, getting uh, stale and, and is out past the 90-day mark, uh, you may want to consider uh, consulting an attorney um, you know, there's a lot of things uh, that you can do better uh, 
um, in the early stages of the default rather than waiting uh, for the passage of time in hopes of you know getting the the debtor to pay up well so what I'm hearing from both of you though is that you really should act uh early and not wait Am I, would that be a good uh summation? I think we'd agree on that. <laughs> On uh, both sides of the fence, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's really been fun, and I hope that the two of you will come back a- another time, and we'll continue this discussion. Sure. Absolutely, Don. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you. It's, it's really been fun, and thank you again. Take care, Don. You too. Our next guest is John. Oshi, I hope uh, CEO of Swift, Swift Page. He's been on before, and um, we liked him so much we invited him back. How are you, John? I'm fine, Don. How are you doing? Thanks for having me back. I mispronounced your name last time, and I think that <laughs> I, I pronounced it right. It's, it's Oshel. Yeah, it's a tough Oshel. one. Okay. Yeah. I, with a name like Mazzella, that always gets Mazzola and everything else. I try to, and... Uh, but welcome to the show. And uh, again, as you know, we always ask our uh, uh, guests first to say a little bit about themselves personally before we get into our topic for tonight. Sounds good. Thanks, Don. Uh, I'm John Oshel. I'm the president and CEO of, uh, of SwiftPage. I've uh, been with SwiftPage uh, as CEO since July of 2012, but I've been around SwiftPage for quite some time. I've been on the board of directors since uh 2006. Um, prior to SwiftPage, I uh, was uh, in the uh, the information business. took uh, took a company called IHS Public and uh, did a number of acquisitions. Uh, I've worked for large companies and small companies. I've also worked for Johnson and Johnson and Kellogg's. Um, I would say that you know my uh, my expertise is around uh, taking uh, companies uh, at a at a certain size and then growing them larger, both through organic growth and through acquis- uh, acquisitive growth. So that's me. Okay, now uh, you're on tonight because you want to talk about SwiftPage, but um, what does Swift SwiftPage do, and and why should our audience be listening to you tonight? SwiftPage is a, is a company that owns two product lines. We own uh, the ACT product line, which has been around for, uh, I, I would say, almost 27 years now, and it is uh, the number one contact manager uh, in, in the world, has uh, over 6 million uh, small businesses that have used it uh, through its lifetime to, to help themselves grow. We also own SalesLogix, which is more of a mid-to-enterprise uh, CRM uh, package that has been around for 18 years and uh, is really uh, you know geared towards uh, helping those companies have better interactions with uh, with their companies. But now you have a new product for small business, am I right? We do, we do. We just announced uh, uh, our Act Cloud uh, beta, which uh, went out just uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And it's really geared towards the what I'll call the micro and small business. Um, you know, the the whole aspect of of Act Cloud is really around making it extremely simple for micro and small businesses to uh, capture all the information they need about their about their contacts, or leads, or prospects, or customers. Capture all the interactions associated uh, with those contacts. But the most important thing is to help recommend what's the next best interaction a small business should have with a lead or a customer in order to lead to a, to a transaction. So, so we're pretty excited about that. We've gotten uh, you know, great feedback so far on, on, the, on the beta. And um, you know, if folks want to go and, and try it out, they can just go to cloud.act.com and sign up. And it's a, it's a free open beta right now. So uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to get more feedback. Well, let's talk about that because uh, uh, for one of the things, uh, whenever I go to a, sh- um, a show or an event and I give my card out, I give it out with the relative assurance that only one in ten will ever contact me. Um, uh, that's one, or if I put in, why should a small business have such a system as this? 
You know, Don, that's a that's a great uh, great point. I think the the interesting thing that uh, I think small businesses need to to realize, and I'm going to take a half a step back and just talk about um, you know the small business in the industry, and, and and what what we believe is that small businesses need four things in order to continue to to grow. And, and and let's face it, I mean, small businesses. Most people that get into to small businesses are there because they're trying to do something that they really love and they really uh, really are good at. Um, and, and, and then they get into it and they realize that there's all this other baggage and, and stuff that they need to, to understand and learn in order to, to grow, etc. But the four things that businesses need uh, to, to grow are, first of all, presence. Everybody's aware of that. You, know, you need a URL, you need a website, you need a Facebook page, etc. If you don't if you don't have that, you're really not in business uh, anymore in today's society. Um, everybody does that. Then they realize that nobody is, is coming to that. So the second thing they need is traffic. So that's where they get into things like SEO or search engine optimization. They get into SEM, AdWords, or whatever. They're trying to drive traffic to that presence. They do that, and that creates a bunch of leads. And then uh, the, the third thing they need is, what do I do with those leads? And that's what's called conversion and retention. How do I convert those leads to customers, retain those customers, and grow those customers? And then the fourth thing that they need is what we call optimization tools. So you're going to need payroll, you're going to need financial systems, you're going to need HR systems, etc. So those are the four things that every, uh, every small business needs in order to literally grow and continue to, to, to be in business. Now what we're talking about is, is clearly in this conversion and retention space. And that's about uh, understanding information about every single uh, lead or customer or, or, that you have. If you don't have that intimate understanding of a lead or of your customer, it's going to be really hard to convert that lead to a customer or to retain that customer. So, you know, when you ask why, it's, it, you know, we, we really believe it's you have to have that information if you want to continue to grow your business. Couldn't agree with you more, so keep going. You make <laughs> yeah, my so, life easy. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, what, what we, we like to take a look at uh, in this conversion retention, what's, what is the most critical information that you need in order to, to uh, really uh, master that conversion retention space? And it is information around the contact. And we define contact as a lead, a prospect, a customer, uh, a past customer that used to be a customer, etc. And one of the things that we, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, really driving down is what's called the four C's of contact management. Uh, are you familiar with that, Don, at all? Uh, I'm going to admit I, I do, but I'm, I'm, perhaps our audience doesn't. So okay, continue, super. John. You're, so you've the, got, you're on a roll. Okay, thanks, Don. Um, so the four C's uh, is is really around. Uh, well, well, let's name the four C's. So the the, the, the four C's are uh, correctness, currency, consistency, and completeness. And it's very important if you look at those in, in that order as well. Now, now um, correctness and currency, they're pretty self-explanatory. If you don't have you know, the correct uh, email address or if you don't have the correct address or you don't have the correct phone number or the, you know, whatever, you're not going to be able to, to uh, have a, an interaction with, with that uh, with that contact or with, or with that customer or lead. Uh, currency is very important as well because, you know, they, currency and correctness go hand in hand because, you know, people's emails change uh, rapidly. People change jobs, uh, you know, etc. So you have to keep that, that information current. If you don't have the correct and current information, it's going to be really hard to have that, you know, the first step in an intimate relationship with, with your contact. The, set, the third uh, area or C is, is consistency. And in today's day and age, Don, this is so important because if you think about it, we have information about uh, customers and contacts and leads everywhere. We have them in our, in our CRM systems. We have them in Outlook. We have them in Gmail. We have them in Facebook. We have them in LinkedIn. And, and it's so important that you look across that and make sure that you have consistent information. For instance, if you have one set of information in your LinkedIn contact, but you have a different set of information in your CRM, now you start thinking about, okay, well, which one of these is correct, and which one of these do I need to 
you know, make sure that, 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 that I'm using. So consistency across all of your uh, areas uh, that, that you have is, is important. The fourth C is completeness. Now this is the one, Don, where everybody says, you know, oh, I know this one. This is where you've got to make sure you have both their, you know, home address and, your, and their work address. You know, you have to know what their wife's name is or their husband's name is, their kid's name, their birthdays, etc. And that's all good information and that makes it complete. But what we're talking about completeness is capturing every single interaction that you have with that person. Now, what is an interaction? An interaction could be somebody gives you a business card. That's an interaction. An interaction could be a phone call. It could be an email. It could be a tweet that they retweeted. It could be a transaction when they bought something from you. It could be a service call that they had. All of those make up an interaction. And if you capture all of those interactions, that's about as complete as information as you can possibly get. And that allows you to then utilize uh, software like uh, AtCloud that can then go in and start analyzing those, those interactions. And then the recommendation engine basically tells you, hey, based upon all these interactions, here's the next best interaction you should have that will you know, increase your probability of leading to another transaction. So those are the four C's, and that's, you know, that's kind of what uh, AtCloud is, is, uh, is based upon. And, and quite frankly, I think the whole CRM industry uh, is, is moving to that as well. Well, l l l let me summarize and see if I understood it correctly. What you're saying is you're gathering the data, uh, and then uh, from that data, uh, your, your system and other systems can then recommend, well, you should contact him with an email next week about your, net, uh, your, your uh, a sale on your, your products, et cetera. Is, is that what you're essentially saying? Yeah, exactly. And, and it could be going a little bit further instead of just, you know, contacting them about a sale. It could be, hey, you know, you haven't, uh, you haven't had an interaction with Don in, in, a, in a while. He's been a, a good customer. Here's all the transactions he's had. Maybe you should just reach out and say, hey, Don, how, how, you know, what, what's, uh, what's going on in your business? Um, or, you know, it could be that, hey, you know, I want to understand all the people. If I'm a landscaper and I'm going to be in a certain area that day, I want to understand all the people that are there that have transacted with me in the past that I can reach out and say, hey, I'm going to be in the area. How about if I stop by and, and, uh, and have a conversation? So absolutely, you're, you're exactly on the right track there. Well, it's taken me a while to figure this out. Uh, uh, now I understand it better. That's why I like having, having you on the program. Uh, now, <laughs> your new product and, and other products, uh, it, it seems that every day I'm getting a, a similar type product thrown across my desk. But um, your product and the other products are all, uh, are now, uh, you're not taking what a big corporation would use, but rather um, turning it around and, and making it for, for companies like mine which has an uh, IT-challenged leader like me, um, <laughs> um, able to uh, do a lot of things that the big big boys are doing. Absolutely. I mean, so, you know, that's the beauty of the cloud, right? So when you have a micro or small business and, and you know, you're, you're out there doing, you're, they're mastering, uh, you're the master of your craft and you're doing what you love, you don't want to have to worry about, you know, do I have the right server in the house? Do I have this or whatever? All you really want to know is, is my internet connection up and working, or, or do I have some way to 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 connect to this? And you really only want to know about, it, you know, and I don't care what device it is. So can I get at it on my phone, my tablet, or 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 my laptop, uh, etc. So it's it's absolutely the, um, you know, the the right uh, you're on the, the right track there, Don. Well, uh, I hope. I, sometimes I have to interpret for my audience, and, and um, most of the time it's interpreting for me. But uh, people, again, the name of your product and how they can test it out for free? Sure. The name of uh, well, ACT is, is the product. ACT Cloud is, is the new product that we just, uh, just launched. And if they go to cloud.act.com, they can, uh, they can uh, sign up and, uh, and, and start using uh, the free beta. And uh, again, we're just uh, we're, we're excited to get people to to use this and then give us as much feedback as possible. Well, if they wanted to contact you directly, how how can they do it? They can contact me on my email. It's uh, J uh, Oshel O E C H S L E 
at SwiftPage, that's S-W-I-F-T-P-A-G-E dot com. Um, they can reach out to my uh, uh, my Twitter account is uh, at uh, H-J-O-S-H, it's O-E-C-H, um, and, uh, you know, get the, just uh, send me a message and we'll, we'll start the conversation. Oh, I'm so glad you came back, John, and thank you again for another interesting night. Oh, thanks, Don. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, have a good time, and uh, we will have you back. Talk to you Great. soon. Thanks, Don. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.